Hi, I'm Janko Tipsarevich, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome back to the Functional Tennis Podcast, episode 44. Hope you've been enjoying our episode so far. And if you have, please leave us a review or five-star rating on iTunes. These really do help make a difference and help spread our podcast to more listeners. So this week, we've a man who needs no introduction on the show. I'm very excited and grateful to have former top 10 player and Davis Cup winner, Janko Tipsarevich on the show. We talk about Janko's career from juniors into the senior career, into winning tournaments, winning Davis Cup, playing top matches, what he learned from playing those people and a lot more, including his current day academy and a look inside this whole COVID situation. It was such a great show. I really enjoyed it and I know you're going to love it too. So let's go. Hi, Anko. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Hi, Fabio. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's absolute unbelievable pleasure to have a legend on the show. Thank you very much. Tell me, how are you getting on right now during these tough times? I guess same like everyone. <laughs> Serbia is actually, I read an article yesterday. Serbia is one of the 15 most rigorous countries when it comes to like laws and restrictions of movement. Now, it sucks in one way, but in the other way, I am happy about it because I imagine that this would help the pandemic to pass along much quicker rather than not taking it seriously and then dragging it along for two, three, four, five months. Our country has a close connection to China. We have a bunch of Chinese doc- doctors here which are leading the, the charge against the virus. So this uh, isolation and rules restrictions that we're having is hopefully going to help to get rid of the pandemic sooner. Yeah, you guys have been in lockdown a good one now because we did a live Q&A with Steph Bojic, the guy who you're trying to do some of his tricks with. And he was telling me he'd been in lockdown at three weeks. So at this stage, this was a few weeks ago. So can you actually go out of the house at all? We can, yes. I couldn't, Fabio, actually. It was the first day that the lockdown actually started. We're talking lockdown on borders. There was a law or a rule issued by the government that whoever came from a Western country has to be self-quarantined for 14 days. And on that particular day, I came back from Vienna because I went to visit my brother. So I got a 14-day self-isolation lockdown in my apartment. Soon after that, after these two weeks have finished, there was an additional 14 days that all of us (laughs) had to stay in the apartment. So I had 28 days of self-isolation, believe it or not. Oh, oh God. And well, you are a high energy person. You know, you like to keep fit. How have you been keeping fit? We have an elliptic machine in one of our rooms and I am doing my core exercise uh, and the strength exercise. And it's not too long. I would say an hour, 15 every day just to sweat a little bit. But I definitely miss going outside and running, being on the fresh air. Now this 28 days has passed, so I'm running outside every day for about 40 minutes, but it's just something to try and stay fit in my old age since I'm a retired player. You're not that old, really. <laughs> just because you're tired doesn't mean you're old. Sure. And tell me, you obviously you retired you, at the end of last year. And did you play the ATP Cup this year? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I actually, uh, like, I could enter with my frozen protected ranking. But I just thought Davis Cup was one of my favorite competitions. Even though we tragically lost to Russia with match point and everything, I enjoyed my time with the guys and I just felt fit that that's the time to, to retire. But at least you won the lucky few to win the Davis Cup. Tell me, was, is that one of your most memorable moments? I consider myself a team player. So I always flourished in a team environment. I always wonder how would I be if I have taken on basketball or football or any other team sport. That's why winning Davis Cup, also because with all of the guys from the team, like Nenad and Novak and Victor, we are personally close friends. This victory as a team success 
was the most happiness I felt on the tennis court. I, I can only imagine, looking at your results, you had some epic, like you were the finishing tie winner a few times on those big semifinals. That must have been such a huge moment. We were lucky that a lot of these big ties we played at home in Belgrade and tennis was booming at home. Like Anna was number one, Yelena was number one, Novak was number one, Nenad was number one in doubles. So tennis was really rocking and rolling in Serbia. So a lot of these ties, especially the the ones we played in Belgrade, we were playing in front of 15 to 20,000 people indoors uh, for yeah. Some of your listeners to understand that's an equivalent of a center court on a Grand Slam. And uh, imagine the court of a Grand Slam stage being indoors and all or most of the people are cheering for you. So these atmospheres will be imprinted in my memory forever and ever. Yeah, not too many tennis players get to experience that sort of atmosphere, especially with their team as well, with your countrymen. And what is the secret to you Serbians having such great players? I spoke yesterday with a friend of mine on the same subject. I don't have an answer for you, Fabio. I don't. I know that it's not because of the system that we have, and I'm not blaming the country or the tennis federation for it, uh, because we are not. Serbia is not a tennis nation. We're talking about history, right? Not not right now. So all of this that has happened in the last few years happened by chance or, dare I say, by accident. Because in the turbulent times of uh, Serbia or Yugoslavia or Serbia-Montenegro, there was no structure. You couldn't say that there was a structure with a strong federation that brought up all these great players. Everybody found their own way. And I'm so happy that... The younger generation coming now with Dushan and Philip and Laszlo and all these guys, Miomir, which are top 50 right now, they are, I don't want to say looking up to the generation before them, but, but thinking, oh, if this guy can be top 20, why can't I be top 20? Kind of like a positive jealousy, if I can say it like that. Yeah. No, I, I think you guys are very have a very positive mental attitude fortitude would probably be the best word that you just the belief and the strength is just comes across you can see it and you also use a really nice from me interacting with tennis players all over the world like most of the Serbian guys have I've interacted with them all like you know they'll reply they'll say hello and they send me videos I can't say the same for all players but for you guys have been really nice to me and to Functional Tennis, being your own hospitality at the Australian Open last year, to Dirk Novak last year, giving us nice words at Roland Garros, and to Dustin sending us video messages and various things. So I just got to say you guys are really nice as a whole. Thank you, Fabio. First of all, you're doing a tremendous job. That's uh, I don't want to say that's why we are nice, but I can speak for all of the guys if you're not doing a great job. Uh, I don't think I would be on. I just believe in your channel. I believe yeah. in your Instagram channel. That's why I'm on. The second part is, I think it's a cultural thing. I'm not saying that all of the Serbian people are like this, but this first generation of Nenad and, and Victor and Novak and myself, I consider us very personally close. And therefore, you translate that kind of behavior to the younger generations. And they adapted really, really nicely. You know this as well as I do. You don't have a lot of Davis Cup uh, federations and Davis Cup uh, players which are so tight outside of the court. So once this is happening, we kind of feed off each other. And I personally really love it. Yeah, no, it's very clear and it's such a great characteristic to have. So well done on that and well done on you guys, the senior guys transferring that to the younger guys. Like you talk about there was no real tennis history there. So for you, like you were, you were world number one junior, you won the Aussie Open junior. Just give me a little background. How did you get to that stage of tennis? I had, if I can draw one thing from my younger self, I had a very good working attitude. So I used to train a lot at a very, very young age. I used to 
practice, I would believe already from the age of 14, like twice a day, plus doing fitness. I had a very good and strict Russian coach, which was pushing me to become the best version of myself. And uh, I was just good. I don't know what to say. I was uh, world number one under 14, 16, and 18. And uh, then the translation to the senior tour didn't really go as planned. But my junior career was, I have to say, really, really good. I imagine the main difference was because I was really working hard at a very, very young age. Okay. We do hear a lot about the juniors now. Like if the guy who tries the hardest normally wins because they just cave in so easy. So I can see how that attitude can obviously help you get so far, but you must have had extra. You obviously had the game and a lot more than that. But you talk about difficulties entering the senior tour. What makes it so difficult for juniors entering the senior tour? For juniors like myself, which had a a, a great junior career, being number one in every category. Over the years, you are, I like to say, young and dumb. You're a teenager, so you build up an attitude. You build up this ego or super ego, which is completely unnecessary and is damaging to your career in the beginning of your senior ATP career. And now why is that? In the very beginning, in these few years, you are used to winning. You win, you win, you win, and you don't really, at least I'm talking about myself, you're not really used to losing. But you don't realize that you are not competing against men. You're competing against a handful of boys of the same age. And then when you come to the senior tour and you break through, you need to start to understand the concept of losing. You need to start to understand how do you deal with defeat what do you draw from defeat and how do you use it for your next, not only match, but practice? This is what I didn't have. I built up an ego and I'm not saying I tanked matches, but let's just say I didn't really give my best if I saw that I am not going to be a definitive winner. I wasn't really a hardcore professional as I was in my junior years. So this took longer than I expected. It took me, I believe, like two years or maybe maybe three, I'm not sure, to break through to the top 100. And then things started unraveling a little bit. I grew up and I started understanding how the men's tennis is working, actually. Two or three years in the top 100, isn't that bad? There's not many players doing that now at that age. So you were still on a good path. But how did you learn? Was it just playing matches, losing, and eventually it just came to you because you got a bit older? Would you have somebody in your corner helping you? It came through a mixture of just physically growing up and looking at the examples of other younger players breaking through and a mixture of meeting the right person, Dirk Hordor, who was my coach for a very long time later in my career and my manager, who helped me to understand how do you deal with these things outside of the court? I was still a hard worker on court. I could go all day and practice all day because I enjoyed it. But you know Fabio as well as I do, to become a good player, it doesn't only take hard work and practice. If you don't devote your life to, to tennis outside of the court as well, chances are that you will not succeed. And uh, I'm sure top juniors moving in senior games are guilty of not devoting their time maybe off the court to tennis. Especially in this time, especially in this uh, day and age. I don't want to sound like an old head uh, uh, mentioning and saying this, but especially in these times, and I'm not calling this generation softer than the previous generation because this is what the older guys tend to do. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that in this age of the World Wide Web and the Turkey's blue sky of Instagram and the green grass of Facebook, I'm just saying that there's a tremendous amount of distractions which are pushing you away from your main objective. And then things don't pan out as they should. I completely agree with you. I, th I think that's a problem for not only tennis players, for all different aspects of life. And what is your advice for 
people who have children, let's say, or, or kids or juniors themselves, or even I'm sure there's senior players who struggle with this, who spend too much time on their phone, on social, wasting time. This is one of the episodes that I want to do on, uh, on my <laughs> newly formed YouTube channel. But uh, it's, this is a tremendously interesting topic. And I'm not just saying that I have the right answer. This is just my humble opinion. I have nothing against phones. I have nothing against uh, Facebook or Instagram. I just uh, have a problem with it if you're using it to waste time. I believe my general thinking is that life is very, very short. So if you use these things to waste time, this is really, really damaging for the potential best version of yourself that you can be. What I'm saying is to younger players, and my advice is it, try to set up a goal. This goal can be very short-term or long-term. But when you set it up and you clearly mean that goal, whether this goal can be to do something with your uh, individual stroke or it can be a career goal. If you're really true to the goal, the amount of time that you will be spending on social media, on your phones, on your computers will be much, much, much less. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It, it, is, it is such a tough thing to do with everybody being on. I personally struggle with it also because most of my job is based on social media. So you're trying to get the balance right all the time that you don't overspend. And I struggle with it, but I'm trying to get better day on day. But some days it's, it can be tough being online all day and you just want to throw the phone away. But I, I can't. No, it can, but in your case, let's put it like this. I have nothing against if uh, a young player is on YouTube four hours any particular day. But if these four hours are being used to watch matches and videos which are benefiting his game, I would tell him be even six hours if this is a possibility. There is a very thin line in using the technology to our advantage, like you are doing in terms of growing up your company and your business and wasting time. Wasting time means that you are being on Instagram, scrolling up and down, reading comments, liking, disliking, leaving comments, being on Facebook, on TikTok for forever. Productive time is creating a post. And for you to create a post, I have nothing against people posting stuff. But then don't spend another 45 minutes being on Instagram, just watching at other people's pictures. True. This is what I have a problem with. Yeah, it's a pandemic, it's epidemic, it's everywhere. And it takes yeah. a kid with really strong mental attitude to be able to see over that and just, you know, just not be interested in it. And as you say, they're busy on their game, they're working on their goals, they have their processes in place. So yeah, it's. I look forward to the video to seeing your further thoughts on it. Yeah, I still haven't made it in my mind how I want to actually articulate it, but uh, I hope it will meet your expectations. Yeah, I'm sure they always do. I remember seeing a video of you speaking to kids. It, was, it must be one of your academy videos. This was a few years ago. And I think you were teaching them the slice anticipation. And it was just like, you just got to stay out here until you can do this without thinking about it. And if it takes two hours, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, this is all you're going to be doing. I'm not sure if you remember the video. It's one of the first things we're taught as tennis players, I think, to slice anticipation. But the way you sold it to them was like, you need to just put in the work here. There's no, there's no cheating here. I am a big, I'm a big, big believer, Fabio, in habits in creating big habits, because I believe that every human or every person has a certain amount of willpower. Some of us have it more, some of us have it less. But willpower by itself, uh, imagine it as a muscle. So a muscle only has a certain amount of energy to do stuff, whether if it's to whatever, lift weights or run or do whatever you, you can. And then at the end of the day, that muscle is empty. There's no more energy in it. Imagine willpower in the same capacity. So if you need to tap into the well of willpower to use this to think about, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? The amount of productivity that you're going to have is going to be incredibly small as in comparison to put in the work, 
that you create habits instead of thoughts. Because when we do our habits, which we don't think about, we don't tap into the well of willpower to use it to do stuff. This can be as easy as brushing our teeth in the morning in terms of a good habit. You do it, but you don't spend any energy thinking about should I do it or should I not do it. You just do it because it's a habit, which you created exactly as you said, over the course of time, repeating it from your parents when you were young one million times. This is exactly the same thing, and it's very applicable in anything in life. Also, when we're talking about tennis. So if you put in the work, as you just mentioned, you create a force of habit that even later on in your stress environment on the match, when all the emotions are kicking in, you still do something without thinking. Therefore, you don't spend energy. I went too much into psychology right now, but this is something I really deeply believe in. Sorry. No, no, I think you're right. I never taught it a willpower as a muscle. And I think that makes a lot of sense because I know from personally speaking, where you try and I got to do this, I got to, no, eat, can't eat this food, got to train here, got to work here. Eventually, because you're forcing yourself to do these things, something, always one thing gives in. So it could be a late night, it could be sweets, it could be junk food or exercise. You can't do it all because, you know, they're not habits, long-term habits, but that's a great way to put it, Yanko. And lately, I'm not sure if you've heard of a book called Atomic Habits. I read read it, uh, I believe, like over a year ago. I like the book. It's a very good uh, I want to say entry level book to that so that people understand uh, the power of habits. Yeah, I only started reading it there last week and I absolutely love it. And I put it on Functional Tennis as a recommended read to all our fans. I think it's really good. And it goes into, as you say, the intro level of building habits into your life, which will help you achieve your goals. Amazing book. And I would recommend same like you to everyone to read it. Great. Okay, so moving on. You started your senior career. It initially went went pretty well. You got some how many titles? You won four ATP titles, loads of challenger titles. So Well I won four ATP titles. I don't know how many challengers. I won one doubles title. Fifteen uh, challengers. Fifteen. Oh my god. Okay. 15, that's that's 15. pretty good. And I, I was going through your wins, like you've beaten Murray Djokovic, like your career goes back so long. It's amazing. Carlos Maya, Safin, Hewitt, Ferreira, Roddick. I tend to forget how long you were actually on the tour. What changed for you playing those players, like let's say from a Roddick to a Djokovic? I like pressure. I enjoy pressure. I flourish in pressure. And uh, I actually had a very good habit, a very good habit, sorry, a very good record against top 10 guys once I was playing them. I believe even though my ranking was, I think at that stage, my career high ranking was like 50 or something. But my record against top 10 guys was almost 50%. Meaning that every second top 10 guy that I played, I used to win. So this was another, again, I'm going into psychology, Fabio, now, another complex being drawn from my earlier arrogant self when I was a junior, why I didn't use my full potential earlier. I had two brilliant top 10 years, but the main difference then was that I took every single opponent with the same amount of respect and effort as I did when I played on a big stage against the top 10 player, which I ultimately respected. So once this changed in me, I was able to unlock my full potential and play the two greatest seasons of my career. Coming back to the early senior stage, I only wanted to play when I wanted to play. It's not that it was a 365-day effort. It was hot and cold and hot and cold. And you know, to achieve the best results in this game, since the season is so long, consistency is one of the main factors. Definitely. You need to be, you need to be showing up every day. And I think consistency is a key factor for most things in life also. But tell me two years in the top 10, that must have been amazing. Like the, the top guys were scared of you. 
with a record like 50% against the top 10, they must have been going out and saying, not Yanko today. I don't want to see him in the draw. Well, I don't, I don't know about that, but uh, I felt that at certain stages I could hurt uh, a top, top player. The main difference, Fabio, is that all of these champions, they never, if you look at Rafa, especially Rafa and Novak, they give the same amount of respect to every single player. So it's for them, it's completely irrelevant if they play a guy who is 100 a guy who is top 50 or top 10. They give them the same amount of respect. Now, I had some good matches against top players, but I don't think within them the emotion has changed much from Janko before than Janko being top 10 because they always knew I could play. The main difference was that I had actual consistency right now as opposed to beating a top guy and losing the next round immediately. And how did that consistency come about? Was it just you were healthier for a longer period of time or? No, creating a goal. Coming back to my previous point, one of the things which helped me tremendously is creating an actual goal and willing to do whatever it takes for it. Because before, even when I broke into the top 100 and top 50 and my career ranking, high ranking was 30 something, at that stage, I never actually committed and created the goal. I always worked very hard. I always did my routine, everything as a professional tennis player should do. But I never really created a goal in my mind for which I'm willing to do whatever it takes. So the year that we won the Davis Cup, I said to myself the following year in 2011, I believe, Uh, I said, this year, I'm going to be top 20 and I'm going to win my first ATP title because I lost in in five finals before that. And if I don't do that, I will, I'm paraphrasing (laughs) now, I will jump off a bridge. When I say I'm obviously paraphrasing, but I'm saying I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And the year started terrible. The first three matches that I lost, I lost having match points in every single of these matches. It started terrible. And after every single match, I know this sounds like a Hollywood story, but I swear to you on my, I don't want to sound like a gypsy now, but I swear saying, I called my brother and after every one of these losses, I said, this is going to be my year. I promise you, this is going to be my year. And actually nothing changed until middle of the year. And then all of a sudden, started getting luckier in draws. I started beating players that I didn't beat before. I started using chances that I didn't use before. Long story short, I started the year with 49 and I ended up playing in London after Andy Murray pulled out with the ranking of number nine. Wow. Impressive. You just had was that you knew it was coming. You just kept working, really. That's what it comes I knew I knew it was coming. I am not a religious guy. I'm an atheist and I don't believe in God. But I believe that if you really want something and you put in the time that the universe sees this, the universe sees that and it's, I don't believe in one once in a lifetime chance. I don't believe in this. I believe that if you want something so bad and you put in your work continuously, the universe sees this and is continuously giving you opportunities and chances. The only difference is because you are so obsessed about your goal, you are there to seize the opportunity. Most of the people are not devoted. I'm not saying about tennis, about things in life. 100%. So when the opportunity is there, they don't see it. It's not that they don't use it. They don't even see it. Because they're not obsessed. Too many distractions. Too many distractions. Amen. Tell me, you also, I know you read a lot now, but before, as when you were young in your 20s, did you read a lot? I did read a lot. And this was uh, one of the problems because of the literature that I was reading. I got the love towards uh, for, lit- for literature from my mother, who used to and still is reading quite a lot. But uh, the books that I fell in love with at that stage, even though I was young and I didn't completely and fully understand them, was like heavy, hardcore philosophy. I like to 
talk about and think about like life after death and thinking about all these really, really heavy subjects. So this is mm. something which didn't really help me in my progression in the senior period, because if you read philosophy like whatever, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, and Heidemauer, most of these guys are really freaking depressing. <laughs> most of them, yeah. because at the end of every philosopher's book, it's always, it's philosophy is not the art of truth. It's seeking the truth. The truth is different for everyone, but normally it's not very positive in the books of these guys. So this really, I believe it made me smarter in a way that I look at things differently even today. But it didn't really help my tennis career. I thought the reading would have helped. Sorry, I thought the reading might have helped your tennis career because that's you're getting a lot of knowledge from that. But obviously, you got something from it. Gave you another outlook, which is really important as well. It is helping me in my later years, definitely. It's helping me to put things in different perspective, in different compartments. To you know, because when you're young and emotional like I was, you tend to do everything all at once. But now in, when you're older and obviously drawing back from my experience, I can put things and thoughts in different compartments and then wisely choosing when to open them and restart. Them. So it definitely helps. I agree with you. I think reading's good in all forms. And I happened to see one of your matches uh, on YouTube against Andy Roddick, 2008, I think. Am I right? I am terrible with years. I don't. I, I know I played Roddick. I lost a bunch of times. I won a few times. but You beat him at Wimbledon. Okay, good. We're talking about the one we, the one I won, of course. <laughs> yeah, the one you. I'm not going to talk about the one you lost here. This is uh, no, no, uh, no losers here. But it was actually unbelievable. Anybody's looking should check it up. I think 2008 Wimbledon, you against Roddick, you were hitting winners. Like the rallies were going on for a bit, for especially for the grass, and then you're coming out with backhand winners after backhand winners, and it was pretty impressive. So you could see the fire there. Andy is one of my favorite people on the tour. Just I love how he conducted himself, how he had relationships with the media, how he talked, how he retired at the right time for him. So everything about him was really, really spectacular. Shout out to Andy Roddick. Um, I enjoyed playing him because I wasn't really affected by the speed of his serve. So my problem was placement. I hated uh, being on the receiving end of Roger's serve or, or I mean, everybody does, but for me, this was terrible or, or Chilich serve or guys who are very precise because I'm not the tallest guy. But in terms of pure speed, I didn't really have a problem to control it. And then from the baseline, Andy was playing pretty clean, which didn't affect my ability to try and hit winners. So even though I think I lost more times than I beaten him, I enjoyed playing him. Yeah, I advise people to check it out. But you just mentioned Roger there, his serve. What's it like returning a serve where, it's, as you say, it's not the quickest serve in the world, but he's going to hit a spot. And are you actually, are you just guessing or do you have any clues? You have to guess. And I always say the best servers in the world are not considered the best because they can serve 300 miles per hour. Obviously, the speed helps. But the real... Uh, aggressive servers are the ones which serve, and I tend to say, all four sides. This means that when you're on the receiving end on the serve, you need to end up guessing where he's going to serve, which is giving you a terrible disadvantage for the next shot. Uh, if we talk about Roger, uh, the rule of him is that you need to, uh, I tend to say, you need to survive his first serve and his first forehand, because this is how he asserts dominance in most of his points. So as you said, he's not the fastest server in the world, but it's he's mixing it and matching it so perfectly to set up the next forehand, which is how he wins the majority of his points, especially in his later years. Yes, he can't really hang around all day now, especially at 38. How many more years do you give him? Knowing Roger, I would say forever. We're all going to be, uh, you know, dead and he's still going to play tennis. <laughs> but uh, he, he loves it that much and I don't blame him. Uh, I, I think every single time when I doubted Roger or Rafa, uh, I, I never doubted Novak, but when I doubted Roger saying, okay, this is the end or thinking, 
he cannot win a Grand Slam or thinking Rafa's knees are going to give up, they have proven me wrong. I'm generally very good in guessing what is going to happen. But with the two of them, I am terrible. I missed almost every time I thought that they're going to retire or, or having the inability to win a slam. So I honestly, Fabio, I don't even want to take a wild guess. <laughs> Done. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. But Rafa's, people have said Rafa, his legs aren't going, his knees aren't going to survive past his 31, 32, 30, how's he, is he 33, 34 now? But you've been through, you've had your big struggles with injury. So you can tell us how tough it is to come back from these big injuries. It's incredibly tough. This is one of the reasons why this quarantine is not so hard on me as it is on some other people. I had seven surgeries and most of the recovery I did alone in Germany. So I'm kind of used to being alone in a hotel, you know, trying to recover from an injury. Now, obviously, I'm home with my family, so I enjoy it so much. But coming back on your on your topic, I don't want to undermine the the sayings of Rafa's team, but we are hearing the same story for a very, very long time, that Rafa's knees are going to give up when he's 30, when he's 31, when he's 32, when he's 33, and he's still rocking and rolling and winning Grand Slams, right? So it's kind of like a cry wolf story, you know? At one time, you think, okay, you said the same thing six years ago and five years ago and four years ago. So, but on the other hand, I actually physically saw the, the MRI of Rafa's patella because the same doctor which was helping him with his knees was doing my recovery in Barcelona. And he did a tremendous job, by the way. And uh, I can tell you that, and I'm no doctor, but it looks terrible. <laughs> it, it, does, it doesn't yeah. look good at all. I wonder how he's able to play. Now, there's obviously a pain threshold, how much he can sustain pain, which I can imagine it's a significant amount. So when you mix and match everything, I on, I honestly don't know. I think he's doing it very smart now in skipping tournaments, same like Roger is skipping clay, Rafa in the later stages, because number one is not a priority for him. He's going to skip the hardcore tournaments because this is what is giving his knees the most problems. So with this kind of smart scheduling, unless there's a, God forbid, serious injury, I see him playing for a few more years. It's great to have them around. I think the longer they stay, the better. Once they can, I'm sure once they stop losing, those guys will probably call the day. So until Rafa has a few more Roland Garros left in him. But speaking of injuries, you had stem cell treatment. I had stem cell treatment done in my knees. I did my surgery in Germany. The surgery went very well, but the patella didn't react good on because they needed to clean it and cut it and everything else. So I couldn't come back on court. I didn't know what to do. I contacted Rafa. He appointed me to his doctor. I went to Barcelona and I did stem cell treatments on my right knee to reduce the inflammation and help the healing process. Now, Shout out to Dr. Kotoro from Spain, who is a tremendous doctor, probably the best tennis-related doctor on the ATP Tour. I'm sure most of the people and the professionals know who he is. He really helped me through my recovery with my right knee. The stem cell treatment is very individual. I can only draw uh, a positive experience from it, but I would advise people to be cautious with it because I know even though it helped Rafa and it helped me and a few of the other guys, I know a handful of players that it didn't do anything to them. So if you do it, make sure you do it with the right person and make sure you get all the necessary advices from the right people surrounding you, whether or not you should do it. Okay, so it's it's not a holy grail guaranteed. I do a bit of reading and a bit of listening on some podcasts and they all go on about it. So it's good to have somebody who's actually got it done and knows people who's had it done and get some feedback. 
for me, it was miraculous. Like really, when I did it, the progress that I got after it is incredible. But I don't want to mention any names, but I know three top 100 Spanish players which did it, and it did absolutely nothing for them. So it's not the holy grail. It definitely helps. It is medically proven that it helps and please don't quote me on this like with liver disease or something like that but in terms of sports injuries uh, insurances are not even covering it meaning that if you do it you need to pay for it by yourself and it's quite pricey if, if done right but it, there's no there's not enough evidence in the medical data background that it actually really helps it can help but it also you know, cannot maybe cannot. Okay, well, that's 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 good to know. But let's move a bit more on to current days. And just before we hit the current day of today, you obviously retired the end of last year. Was that an easy decision for you? It was very easy because it came over time. This decision was hard when I made the decision, but I didn't make it one month or two months before. I kind of knew around French Open 2019, that I'm going to call it a day, at the end of 2019. The main reason for this is that I thought to myself, what would make me happy to continue playing? And I thought, okay, I would be happy, coming back to my goal story, if I set a goal to myself that I want to be top 30 at least once to create a big comeback. But then after the time, after a few weeks and months and uh, part of the year, I saw that I would not be able to have the physical consistency to achieve that particular ranking or that particular result. This means that I can play good a match or two and beat a good player but to have this kind of ranking, you need consistency, which I physically could not have. The second part, I started losing to players which I should have never lost to due to my physical limitations. And this was frustrating me deeply. I didn't see myself at a very old uh, age, I mean, tennis old age, 35, 36, to go through challengers again and stay on the challenger tour. And I mean, no disrespect for the people which are doing it. I just didn't see myself. The second part is the business that I'm currently doing in terms of our tennis academies really started to boom and, and uh, explode. So I thought just it's the right time. You know, maybe I could have played for a year, but I would imagine that this would not bring me any closer to my ultimate goal, which was to be top 30 again. So the decision was very well thought about. So when I actually said it out loud to everybody, it wasn't really hard. Probably is a bit easier to come to that conclusion where you do have a bit of time rather than an injury happening today on court and you're done. Yeah. But uh, I did see that match of sort of one in Australia against Dimitrov and then you got him in Roland Garros again. That was an epic match in Roland. It was a good start in Australia, but the one in Roland Garros, you tied at the end. It was very tight. You could clearly see it. And this was one of the things. I end up losing to Grigor in five sets mm. in French Open. The recovery time for me after a match like that, and the sad part is not because I'm unfit, but prior to that, doing seven surgeries on your legs, it takes its toll. So the recovery part after that, I end up playing quarters in doubles. I don't know how with Dushan Lajovic, but, uh, but to actually get up and play the next day or in two days, it would be impossible for me. And I would be swept off from the court by probably a player that I should have won against. So the, these kind of things are, okay, I was ready for Dimitrov. I gave it my best shot. It was a great match. We played four and a half hours, lost in five sets. But even if I won, would it really make a big difference? Of course, I would get points and prize money would be higher. But 
in terms of achieving your ultimate or my ultimate goal, it wouldn't have brought me any closer because I didn't have the ability to go deep in any event. So this was the the, the proof for me that it's time to call it a day. And that's 100% down to your injuries, your seven surgeries. I I don't know. I like to think that it is. Over the course of my career, I was obviously never the best player, but I strongly considered myself one of the fittest players on tour. I had a very good working ethic. I had a very good fitness coach. And even when I was 30 or 40, I considered myself being the top 10 or top 5 in fitness, being how fit I was. And once I started losing that, because a lot of my tennis was evolving around fitness, I was not half of the player that I used to be. When I say fitness, I mean continuous fitness. Everybody or most of us can give it our best shot in one match. But you need to rest, recover, sleep, train tomorrow, and step on the second round of a Grand Slam playing best of five like nothing happened. And I just didn't have that ability. Of the age doesn't help either. Once you start hitting your 30s, it does get it. I'm, exactly. I'm late 30s now. And I, you know, only play at this recreational level. But you've a tough week's tournament the next week, you're, I feel it. And it's, yeah, age is definitely, that's why all respect to the other guys still out there competing at that age, which yes, it's yes. the recovery protocol must be unbelievable. Or maybe they're just naturally gifted. We don't, we don't know. But uh, so actually your doubles, I did see your match also against Marius Copel and Bopana. I thought that was a great, oh my great match. I've seen a few of them, but no, coming on to, so that's the current day. Uh, obviously, great decision to retire, by the way, because this year would have been a disaster. You know, you would have been, so <laughs> at least yeah. you've had time to work on your businesses. You've obviously, you've been working on them a few years. You had the forecast to say, okay, well, my career will end soon. So let's start building a business. And how are your academies, first of all, where are your academies now? I know you're in Asia or Middle East, is it? In Abu Dhabi? I thought at the very early age, I would say 25, 26, that, okay, I, I like to plan things. So I thought, what do I want to do after tennis? And I thought it would be an incredible shame not to stay in tennis, first of all, because of the drive and the passion that I have towards the sport. The second part is I love coaching. I enjoy coaching so much, sometimes even more than playing. And then I saw a tremendous amount of examples of my colleagues, uh, fellow sportsmen, not, not tennis players, after their careers trying to become or be something they're not. Trying to be big shot businessmen, going into agriculture business or construction business or any other thing. Now, shout outs to, for those who made it, but the amount of athletes that didn't make it trying to go into businesses that they have no freaking idea how they work, most of them failed. And blood, sweat, and tears to create a little bit of capital after your career to invest into something smart. I wasn't going to be the guy to try to act like a big businessman and do something that just for the sake of it. Now, the academy started to grow slowly. Six years ago, we opened a small club of uh, four courts in Belgrade. After a year, it got completely full. Then we opened three, three new courts on a different location. After a year, it got full. One and a half year, we took another facility with nine courts. It got completely full. And the, now in the spring of 2020, we're taking another facility in Belgrade. So... Uh, we are growing at a very uh, fast pace. Internationally, it was always my dream to try and spread the way and the philosophy. How do we work as a unit? How do we work as an organization uh, worldwide? In January 2020, we opened our first academy uh, outside of Belgrade in Cancun, Mexico. And it's been doing tremendously well. We have opened three facilities or three academies in Shenzhen, China. And hopefully by the end of the year, we will strike deals in uh, Israel, Tel Aviv and Berlin, Germany. Now, obviously, with the coronavirus, there's a couple of question marks which we need to answer. But uh, I foresaw it. I have more time to devote myself into projects like this, which I can tell you, Fabio, is tremendously hard. 
the fact that I can play forehand and backhand doesn't yeah. mean at all that I would be a successful business owner in terms of academies. But it's been so far very good to us. But I know that I put in a tremendous amount of that's, work. That's well. serious growth if you keep moving forward. Like, What would your day job consist of? So, I'll tell you one thing. This coronavirus, and I know I might sound terrible when I say this, but it was kind of a blessing in disguise because my the rhythm of my life from the moment that I retired up until after Indian Wells was I was either going to get uh, sick mm. or <laughs> divorced yeah. or something because it was really, really, I ended up uh, retiring in Madrid. Then we flew immediately to uh, Maldives for our vacation. Then I spent one day in Belgrade and flying to Mexico for seven days. Then I spent two weeks in Belgrade doing preparation with a player that I'm coaching and helping, Filip Krajinovic. So I even took that job upon myself. Then I broke my shoulder on snowboarding, doing surgery. Then with a broken shoulder, flying to Australia. Then from Australia, flying uh, back, doing uh, two tournaments in Europe, flying to Dubai. Uh, I was supposed to fly to China and then from China fly to India. Well, so it was really, really terrible. That was retirement. So people are people were telling me like, yeah, you have time now to rest. And I'm thinking I was never <laughs> freaking working more in my life. And I enjoyed it. So my day job, I have to be, which I'm not uh, sadly smart about organizing my time because there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done by nature. And I learned this from Novak. I hate wasting time. So I have to be very smart in organizing my day. So I'm trying to make it as hard as I can, uh, eight to five, eight to six uh, day mm. job. Like I get up every morning at 6.30 and I go to work at eight and then I do, I help and work with Philip, then I do the academy, then I do emails, then I do Philip again, then I do uh, another set of phone calls and everything else, but it's very hard. And my wife is very upset with me because she understands that in this stage, the growing of the business is, is really hard. We opened another company called Tipsarevich Luxury Tennis, which is targeting and entering uh, world five-star resorts. We were lucky enough that already in the first two months, we entered Fairmont in Maldives and one and only in Montenegro. So it's been a very, very exciting retirement. Nice, so far. I'd say, yeah, it's only going to get busier. Your wife is going to be like, even you baby coming now, you're going to be under a lot more pressure. Uh, you're right. So, but this, why I say this Corona is a blessing that I want to set up and structure things exactly how I want them to be once our life comes back to normal. In, I would imagine it will slowly start in June, something like that. And then I need to know uh, how much attention do I need to devote into which project. Now, we're not a big company, but we have around 55 employees working for us. So setting up and giving homework to everybody, to the right person at the right time, this takes a lot of managing skills. You become a HR manager, manages people. That, uh, and yeah. speaking of all mm. COVID and speaking of tennis, you think it's going to go back to normal in June. What, when do you think the ATP WTA tour will get back to normal? Do you think there will be any tournaments this year? I'm very skeptical, Fabio. And the reason for that is, I think John Millman gave a, gave a very good interview a few weeks ago about it now. If you compare tennis as a sport to, to, let's say, NBA or German Bundesliga or whatever, and we're not even talking about crowds, forget about a mass gathering of people coming and watching tennis matches. I'm just saying the, the problematics of actually uh, sustaining tennis as a sport, which have sadly nothing really to do with the ATP or WTA at this stage. Meaning that you can play a German Bundesliga with a complete lockdown of the borders of the German nation or country. 
everybody stays inside and you play football without any fans with it being televised. It's still not as good as with the full stadium, but you can do it because it's local. The issues with tennis being an international sport are much greater because they don't only concern the ATP, the ITF, or the WTA, they concern international governments. And I'll give you a simple example. If if there's a tournament being organized in, let's say, the United States, but the COVID situation in Italy is quite terrible, there is no way that you can organize a Washington 500 event with the U.S. government forbidding people from Italy because the, I'm, I'm giving yeah. you only an example. I'm taking Italy because it was very bad in the last few weeks. Forbidding Italians to enter the country. So you cannot create an entry list. I mean, you can, but it would be the worst and the stupidest decision ever. So the beauty of tennis is because it will be one of the first sports that will start working in terms of locally people playing tennis because there are no mass gatherings like in football or in basketball or in rugby or sports of that nature. But as of international tournaments, this will be very, very, very hard because the virus needs to be sustained globally in order for an ATP or WTA to create entry lists to allow every single player from every single country to enter the tournament. And when will this happen? I am not sure. So when will COVID be globally on a lower scale than it is today? I honestly yeah, don't. Yeah, no, I think it's it's really interesting and we don't have a clue. I'm Actually, in a few weeks, we're going to have Craig Tiley on the podcast. And I'm going to, Great. yeah, it's really good to get him on. And I'm going to be really excited to ask him what his thought is. he getting worried about, you know, Australia next year? I'm sure there's going to be, they don't know what's going to happen. So he was lucky he got the slam in this year. So the government to Tennis Australia gets all their cash. But I'd say next year, they're already beginning to think they have no idea because there could be a relapse. We just don't know what's going to happen. And you're, so you're working with Philip Kranovich. Are you speaking to him daily now? Is he busy working? We are speaking every second day. We started working but then we stopped only because of the government restrictions. The problem is that in, as I told you, as much as it sucks, I'm also happy about it because hopefully this will pass sooner. By law, every single tennis club and facility was closed. You're not allowed to have tennis clubs or sports centers open. They are under lockdown. If you do it, you're breaking the law. So then we were Even we were not breaking the law technically because we were playing on private property. I have a few friends which have tennis courts in their houses, which, okay, this is not breaking the law. But then at one point we thought, okay, I think this sneaking around Belgrade and, you know, playing tennis is not really, you know, beneficial. So we, uh, he's doing his fitness routine every day, obviously, but we are waiting for an actual decision from the government to say, okay, you're free to play tennis without sneaking around into other <laughs> yeah, people's houses. I love it. Sneak around <laughs> your tennis racket. And do you think, let's say, let's say tennis starts in October for random October, we have some sort of tournament, which I don't think there will be. Anyway, do you think there's going to be a few surprises? Some new people just appear all of a sudden, or do you think it's going to be the exact same guys and girls, sorry? I don't know what to think, Fabio. I think there is a lot of decisions that need to be made from the ITF, ATP, and the players by themselves, how things are going to come back to normal. But if you ask me to take a wild guess, I think the exact same people will at least try to pick up where everything has been left off, which was... Obviously, for I'm talking about the ATP Tour now, not about challenges mm. and and the WTA um, yeah. Indian Wells. So I think it was a smart decision to freeze the points, freeze everything, and then once the situation is back to normal, which in my humble opinion will not be anytime soon, uh, that things just start from that moment or from that point. The ATP still hasn't made a decision. The, how are they going to deal with the points once the tour starts back again? Because they don't know how long is it going to last. Because it's a major difference in decision-making. If this virus is lasting for three months, 
or for nine months. But uh, definitely everything is being uh, definitely everything is being affected. Me personally, I'm not sure that U.S. Open will happen. I think United States potentially will be hit hard with the coronavirus, and I cannot imagine that they would take the risk to organize uh, international tournaments with gatherings from people all over the world to restart yeah, the pandemic. No, I, again, I agree with you. So, yeah, and, and no, enough, enough of COVID talk. Let's just, we, we'll end this soon. <laughs> uh, let's just ask you just for a bit of advice for young tennis players out there. What do you tell the young teenagers, boys and girls who want to be pro tennis players? Uh, the thing which I regret in my career, because I believe all of us have regrets, and I think regrets are actually healthy if you approach them in the right way. I don't believe in this. Don't make any regrets about your decisions. You should have regrets, but you should approach them in the right way, not in terms that these things are bothering you for the rest of your life, but more as a lesson and an opportunity to pass along your knowledge. This regrets for decision making that you do made you ultimately smarter or a better person. So the regret that I had when I was younger was that I was only playing tennis. I wasn't living, eating, breathing tennis every single day. This is the main regret of my younger self, why I didn't have, uh, let's put it like this, I'm not saying like winning Grand Slams or being world number one, but why I didn't have a longer career at the top of the men's game. Maybe number eight was the highest ranking I would ever achieve, but I would imagine I would become much better, much sooner, if my attitude towards tennis as this monster thing of my life would have been different at an early stage. But most of the teenagers, and this is not a knock on them, tend to have this thinking of, I have time, especially the good ones. I am young, I have time. So when I get older, I'll be more prepared. Yeah. The, the time is now. If I turn around, Fabio, and I think about where the hell did my career Flat. go? I, it's like it's like yesterday I won the Australian Open. And it's been like... It, it goes that quick, does it? Really, Just... really fast. It goes that quick. I can attest to that as somebody who is freshly God. retired. So make sure you set up your goals very early. And make sure you're willing to do whatever it takes for that because your tennis career life is very short. Young people don't understand it. Tennis careers, they go so fast. And I can. Yeah, life goes so life goes so fast. But yeah, you got to be a digger, so as fast. you say. You have to dig. Uh, my coach was telling me, like, can you imagine if you're a true tennis player, you know what it means to play Wimbledon, yeah. right? So at one stage when I was 26 or whatever, he told me, can you imagine that you will play Wimbledon only six, seven more times? Mm. Maybe. Only. And then when you think about this, oh my God, you start yeah. to panic <laughs> in, in a good way. I mean. So my point is that uh, try to set up a goal very early and be willing to do whatever Great. it takes for it. The so earlier, the better. Listening, guys, and start living tennis breeding tennis every decision has to revolve around you getting better but also we just send out a few interests you're big into photography and drone photography how's that going <laughs> yes i used to be a gamer when i was younger i used to play a ton of video games so luckily at the like later stages of my life i changed that hobby into photography and videography i bought a bunch of i have basically a hollywood <laughs> studio gear in, in my apartment uh, i don't like when somebody takes pictures of me, I'm more like of a behind-the-camera kind of guy. So um, it's a big passion of mine. I love editing because of the gaming background. For me, I can sit, sit in front of a computer for hours and color grade and add special effects and add subtitles and thumbnails and stuff like that. So this kind of 
let's say, post-edit work is not a problem for me because I imagine most of the guys, they shoot the video and then they spend like yeah. 15 seconds on trying to edit how it's going to look like. You know, as well as I do, it doesn't work like that. You need to put in the work on your phone or on your computer to actually make it look good, put in the right music and stuff like that. So this has been a big passion of mine. One of the first things that I'm going to do when we exit the apartment, I'm going to film Steph Boyd and make my twist of one nice. of his tricks. I cannot wait. I already have everything nice. planned. Good. And tell me, does you ask Stefanos Sissipas for some tips? He's quite good with the camera. I think Stefanos is amazing with the camera. I love the way that he's color grading and, and editing his video. I, I saw him a few days, uh, days ago online, obviously, saying how much he loves editing. And one of the reasons, outside of his natural charisma, because how he's uh, doing the work is the love towards editing. So his editing videos uh, is one of his biggest passions. And now I guess he has more time yes, to do definitely it. definitely a lot. So no, it's, it's a great hobby to have. But uh, Yanko, I won't take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you coming on board here for the chat. It was really insightful. Thank you very much. And we wish Thank you, you Fabio, your yes. new baby a few a month away, roughly a month away. Wish you all the health and happiness with your new baby boy coming soon. So thank you very much. Great, Fabio. Thank you for having me on. You're doing a great job. Just keep doing it. And I'm I'm, I'm sure your, your channel is going to grow even more than it is right now. I hope you enjoyed that. I thought it was amazing. And it was such a pleasure to have Yanko and give his articulate answers on the show. Really loved it. So thank you very much, Yanko. If you know of any Yanko fans or any big tennis lovers, please do share this. And also, please remember to leave us a five-star review and leave a small little comment. It would mean the world to me. And finally, next week, we'll be back with the great Neil Scupsy on the show. We had his brother Ken on in one of our earlier episodes, but great to speak to Neil, see the other side of the Scupsy household and see how he's getting on playing with Jamie Murray. So I'll be back next week. Uh, thanks for listening and keep safe, guys. 